Hello fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are peeling back Hollywood's crypt to review H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator. Which I was very excited about when we pulled it and made a a big deal about. And I feel like when I did that, I, I didn't think about this myself and I didn't preface this with the listeners. I saw this like eight or nine years ago. And oh, so baby Andy. Yeah. Ba- baby college Andy. Um, and very much like remembered the things I liked and uh-huh. nothing else about the movie. Period. <laughs> yeah. Because this movie is great for the first hour 20 and the last 20 minutes are extremely problematic. Yes. So content warning to our listeners. Um, this episode will probably deal very heavily with rape, with non-consexual sex, um, a little bit with situational incest, and in general with um, problematic themes. So if you're at all sensitive to that, please take care of yourself. If you do want to listen to this episode, if you don't, we completely understand. Absolutely. And but so, other than that, other than that, because like, okay, do you want to go ahead and say what Reanimator is about, or shall I? I'm happy to take it. Reanimator follows the life of Dan Kane, who is a young medical student, well on his way to being the school's most promising pupil. However, his life is turned awry when he gets a new roommate, Doctor Herbert West, who has an odd, unknown hobby. Dan and his girlfriend, Megan Halsley, become embroiled in West penchant for raising the dead through science. And so the entire movie is about reanimating dead bodies. Right. So I, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Like, I, I didn't know this, but in doing some research, like, the way this came about is... Uh, it, you know, it was an old late HP Lovecraft story, but also I think the producer and director were having a conversation and being like, man, there's so many vampire movies. There aren't enough Frankenstein movies. And this mm-hmm. was kind of like a, a way to do the Frankenstein story through a different template. But yeah, it's very much because it's not even quite zombies. It's, it's more Frankenstein. It's reanimating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I talked about, like, I remembered the things I like about this movie and nothing else. Like, and that list begins and ends with Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West. <laughs> I love the character. Okay. I truly love the character. I love the actor. Um, he mm. is, for anybody unfamiliar, he is like Star Trek royalty and played like six different roles over three different versions of Star Trek. He voiced the Scarecrow in um, Batman, the new animated series. And he's done like a ton of these schlocky horror movies. And Herbert West is just such a, 
honestly fun character. I love that he's this deranged little psycho. He's the shortest man in any room he's in, but he like knows it and he hates it. And he's going to make, he's going to compensate for it with how big his brain is. And there's just so much little, like really fun character stuff for the actor to play with. I love the deranged little laugh he gives when he gets caught reanimating stuff. And I love that he's this flying by the seat of his pants, like asshole lunatic. Who's not afraid to murder for science. (sighs) Chaotic evil, chaotic, neutral, chaotic, 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 neutral, chaotic, neutral. Definitely. I I don't, I don't think he's good. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't say he's good. It's more he's, you know, you called it a hobby, but the the scientific pursuit of reanimating stuff is this obsession he has to the point where, like, it is all he can think about, which is why I, I would say chaotic neutral. He's willing to do anything to achieve this one particular goal, and the goal in and of itself isn't really good. I think he's more trying to unlock the secret of you know, stopping death just for a, like, it it feels like he needs to do it so that everybody knows he did it sort of thing. Yeah. He, at one point, is threatened that his science is taken from, is going to be taken from him, and that offends him more than anything else that's happening in the film, is the idea that his science will not be credited to him. Right. And it takes him like it takes him two seconds to cave into um, the the medical dean, the villain, uh, you know, basically threatening to blackmail him. It takes him all of two seconds to be like, OK, yes, I will do this work for you as long as the work gets done. And then it takes him like all of 30 more seconds for his brain to finish like laying out the thought of "Mm, there's a shovel and you're distracted murder time. (laughs) So another content for warning for our listeners, there is a lot of gore in this movie. Yeah. I, I was, I was sitting here being like, this is the goriest film we've watched on cult fiction. But then I remembered bad taste. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I blocked that out. Yeah, well, <laughs> at time of recording, that is the next episode. So get get <laughs> nestled up right back into remembering it. <laughs> oh no! But like something that was interesting, I thought this came out a year after Toxic Avenger, ah. and you know that was the other extremely upsetting, gory movie that we practically started this project on, and this had a bigger budget but not that much bigger of a budget. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, this feels like this is a good encapsulation of the eighties horror scene. Looking at these two movies, just as a, like this bloody dick measuring contest of, I can make the most offensive thing. Oh, you think that's bad. Okay. I'm going to kick this up to 11. The special effects guy who put in a lot of work, I'm sure we're going to talk about him a lot. Before this movie, the most he'd ever used was two gallons of fake blood. Reanimator <laughs> featured 25. Oh my God. I believe it because within the first, what, 
five minutes of this movie, we have eyes popping out of skulls. Yes. <laughs> and within the first 10 minutes, we have a tit. So I think that's a new record of quickest we've seen boobs. I think it is. Like even Showgirls had a bit of restraint in that way and, and gave the movie ushers time to check everyone's driver's license in the theater before we got into <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yep, but no, 10 minutes in, there's bare chest. And it's it's funny, because like, I wonder if part of the reason it was like more... Well, okay, actually, hold on. Are you talking about the woman who dies at the very beginning? That mm-hmm. um, Okay, because we, we get her topless scene, but I almost feel like in a, in a sexist 80s way, the people were like, oh, yeah, that's okay. She's a larger woman. We can show her boobs, no problem. But then we get um, Barbara Crampton's boobs like, like five minutes after that, so... Yep. <laughs> and speaking of Barbara Crampton's boobs, that sex scene with her and um, the actor who played Dean Cain bothered me because she clearly doesn't finish. And then she just gets up and starts getting dressed. And I'm like, girl, everyone knows you pee after sex. This is a great way to get a UTI. <laughs> Your father is the dean of medicine at a, <laughs> at a prestigious at a school. Hospital. You should know this. Absolutely. I love that that is what you keyed into from that moment. That is very on brand with you. Here to teach you sex tips, kids. Yep, exactly. (laughs) You killed him. No, I did not. I gave him life. But no, like, this movie, this movie was good. You said you said it really well. This movie was actually really good until the very ending. And for numerous reasons, the ending completely makes it fall off the rails. But like it is so 80s. I really I, I think that we were we were saying about something that like, you know, certain movies are a really good time capsule into what the era was like. And I think this is one of that those examples where like this is really an encapsulation of 80s horror. There is smoking in a hospital, which is <laughs> yeah. timestamp. It must be the 80s because there are people smoking in a hospital. Smoking, reading porn, reanimating <laughs> shit. It's a pretty loose hospital. <laughs> and there is one line where the uh, first person of color, first of only three persons of color we see, the character of Mace, um, says, I don't know why they lock that door of the morgue. Ain't nobody getting out. And you're like, okay, well, that's an obvious allusion to later. Someone's going to escape from the morgue, probably a dead body, who has been reanimated. Like, there's so many Chekhov guns going off. It's a damn arsenal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, like, some of them I kind of appreciate. Like, mm-hmm. I there's, there's the parallel um, that Dan has where in the beginning he's doing chest compressions and like trying to save the life and it just isn't meant to be. 
And he's so distraught about that. I actually do appreciate how in the end, like for, for, I I appreciate for specifically him, how the movie Mm -hmm. begins and ends for Dan with him, like trying to resuscitate a woman and Mm -hmm. failing. It's a really nice visual coda. Like, yeah, here's where, here's where we start. Here's where we end. And we've connected in between. Right. So like, you know, that's why I hold this on a higher standard than Toxic Avenger or Killer Clowns. Like, I'm trying to remember if there are any other 80s horror films. For some reason, Bad Taste doesn't count in my head. I think it was too ridiculous to be like considered horror. But this this had a lot of things going for it. And then a couple of things absolutely messed up about it. You mentioned, you know, we only get three characters of color mm-hmm. and I think this is like set in Illinois. So Illinois in the eighties, it's definitely like an issue of, Oh yeah. The Hollywood actors just decided that, all of our main characters were going to be white, but a fun little connection I made in my brain was, Oh, Oh, you mean the HP Lovecraft written story is like terribly offensive to women and people of color. Oh, you don't say because have you looked up the name of HP Lovecraft's cat? Yeah. Yeah. Don't look it up at work, but definitely look it up. Cause that's a fun time. When did he even oh die? I'm looking it up right now. I'm trying to remember when Lovecraft was famous. Like, cause like this is based off of, okay. Yeah. He died in the thirties. Like he died after the great depression. Um, this is based off an HP Lovecraft story, but it was modernized. And so, you know, you get a couple of differences that way, but in any case talked about the special effects. I really like the special effects in this movie. I think especially to compare it to toxic Avenger one more time, this isn't, Oh, we ran over a cantaloupe that we filled with red hair dye. (laughs) Like (laughs) the blood is cool. The, the facial makeup on all of the zombies I felt was like really, good looking and interesting and like even the gross stuff like eyeballs popping out or Mm -hmm. a severed head just kind of rolling around in a a pool of blood it all Mm. looked really cool but my favorite special effect had nothing to do with blood it was actually um the reanimation fluid the the chemical compound that herbert west creates the glowing green stuff it was literal the glow stick it was yeah it was glow stick fluid for real and that was the <laughs> first time that glow stick fluid had been used in a movie and i think that's awesome i think that's wonderful that is the kind of innovation i'm here for and it stands out so well, especially in the last shot when you fade to black and all you see is the glow stick fluid going lower and lower in level. It's very good. Right. This movie, the the the, the special effects are interesting. The soundtrack, especially like the, the credit oh, sequence, beautiful. is really catchy and really good. And So the man who wrote the soundtrack 
went over his allotted time by like a month and a half because he was specifically trying to get a certain sound. And so he funded the last bit himself because he was like, I have something I want to specifically get. And he was trying to mirror Psycho, which makes a lot of sense because Herbert West kind of has some Norman Batesy vibes. Yeah. Not just a pretty face on this podcast. No, no. <laughs> no, no. I never. I thought I was the pretty face. No, I thought. I think you're the pretty face and also the smart one. So. <laughs> <laughs> Vindication. But no, I love that. I, I love the dedication to that. I love. I don't know. There's honestly like there's a part of me that is always so taken aback when it's like, oh yeah, so-and-so donated $1,500 of their own money to finish the thing. Just because I'm like, wow, you had that to do in the first place. I can't even like imagine (laughs) that. But just for the like, for the spirit of the craft, I really love hearing that kind of story of like, no, 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 this thing is going to be amazing. I just need to get it done and I need more time. So if I have to like put in my own money to do this, then that's what's going to happen and look at what we get. And I, you know, I don't think reanimator is up there with the Friday the 13th or like the Halloween's in terms of, necessarily memorability but you know we're sitting here talking about how the score and specifically that opening sequence is a really good unique catchy tune so i wanted i wanted the whole movie to be good about halfway through i wrote in my journal oh this is so good we never get to watch good movies (laughs) shit (laughs) jesus i didn't see that And that's because I didn't write it down because I thought it might a little bit depress you. But <laughs> I I was so enjoying it. And then came the awful scene of awful. So I was like, right. oh, of course the other fucking shoe has to drop. Okay, cool. And so, you know, we've been dancing around this a little bit. We gave the content warning. So... You know, like I said, I remembered the things I liked, which I remembered really liking Jeffrey Combs. And I, you and I even had a conversation off air where you were like, is there anything I need to be worried about? And I thought about it for a while and I was like, um, I mean, a cat dies and that's kind of upsetting. Um, oh, the main girl is like stripped and the villain is like a severed head and is creepy at her. But like, I don't, nothing happens because I didn't remember anything happening and I was dead fucking wrong. Yeah. The severed head held by his body, but encouraged by the girl's zombified lobotomized lobotomized thank you was forgetting the word father um gets very near to raped she gets um kissed by the severed head her nipple gets licked by the severed head and the severed head comes very close to going down on her and it is incredibly upsetting yes (laughs) 
No, I mean, just it, it is like it. It is. It, it was upsetting, even for me to watch. And you and I had like had a conversation where you were like, "Hey, so this thing happened. Didn't remember that, did you, bud?" Um, wow, and, why did you make me sound bitchy? Yeah, I mean, also, I kind of like led you in. It was the blind leading the blind. So, <laughs> but like. You know, I thought this could be a opportunity to kind of talk about sexual violence in films and especially cult films as a whole, because, you know, we we've gone to I, I feel proud of the lengths we've gone to to call out things that are not OK in movies and like even especially in the case of showgirls to give a trigger warning. Um, And you and I did not do the thing that we've suggested other listeners do in the past, like say, go to does the dog die.com, which lists all of the potential like main upsetting trigger warnings so that somebody can still enjoy the film, but at the very least be on guard about what to expect at some point in the movie. Um, and I guess more than anything, just like if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know us, there's a really good chance that you're a huge movie nerd. Um, like we are. And, I mean, just there's a equally good chance that you as a person have some things that totally bother and upset you. Um, and I guess just more than anything, like the, we, we try to give people a heads up, but at the end of the day, especially when we're dealing with cult movies, because we keep drawing this parallel. There's something about sex and violence and tabooness that becomes this subgenre. Like it's always important if you're not sure to check a movie. Cause even in this case, I, I saw this movie a decade ago and half remembered it. And then I thought that I was sure, but I wasn't. And so there was some incredibly upsetting elements that, we watched because of that. Yeah. So giggles and laughs. (laughs) Not the appearance of life. It is life. This is not magic. As you say, I am a scientist. It, It just, it really, it really does have me reflect on like, this is a good movie until the last 20 minutes And we've talked about how there are so many good elements about this, but at the same time, I sit here with the script more than anything, the script, which makes a joke out of what few characters of color it has a script, which takes the main female character who is the only character that has more than like five lines in the whole thing. Um, and you know, has her basically be a pretty face and a pretty chest and a like victim of the male gaze, especially a victim, I I would say, and a script, which is sitting here going like, 
okay, we got Friday the 13th. We got Nightmare on Elm Street. They got nothing on this. We're going to beat them all. And that's... I don't like that. Well, especially since the violence against Megan felt so needless. Like, in in no way did Dr. Hall's obsession with her contribute to the general plot of the movie. Right. It felt accessory. It felt like... And there are so many times as a sexual assault survivor that I feel like I encounter my story as in in movies and in books, I encounter my own story as something to enhance depth in a plot, which isn't, that isn't fair. That isn't fair to do to real people. It's, it's not fair to treat the example that comes to mind that's equivalent to race is um, that horrible movie 12 Years a Slave, where it's like, oh, yes, let's over-exacerbate the slave narrative because that'll make us seem deep and seem interesting, but it's really Oscar bait. And and it'll make us feel better as white people. Sometimes I feel like non-sexual abuse survivors do the same with victims of like oh this will make our movie seem deep and interesting or this will make make our book seem deep and interesting but there are actual people whose story that is and we're sitting on the other end being like do you have any idea how much that actually hurts do you have any idea how much that's triggering and that's painful and you're sitting there dealing with it as an attempt to make a movie do what because in this case, the movie really doesn't do anything with Megan's assault. It just has it. Um, kind of shoved in there. It really doesn't lead to any major character development. It, really, it doesn't lead to any furthering of the plot. It just makes the creepy villain more creepy. Which you could just do with better writing. Right, because, like, it's it's a set piece more than anything. It's, it's the distress that the damsel is put in for the heroes to rescue her from. And yeah. you're absolutely right. Like, the script does a pretty good job of showing that Dr. Hill is a absolute creepy perv who likes his um his colleague's daughter and you know he's got the bit where um dean halsey has been zombified and brought back to life and everyone assumes is crazy and he's got him in his padded cell and he like very clearly hits on megan and so it's like, well, why couldn't that be enough? Why did we decide to just avoid subtext? And I guess, like, the answer is, well, you're watching 1985's Reanimator. Did you really come here for subtext? But there's, like, there there was a middle ground, I think, that could have avoided an unnecessary sexual assault scene. And, like, I mean... I don't even know if I blocked it out because, like, 
the idea of her being captured and stripped and then just like the overwhelming threat of, okay, you're naked and on a table in front of all these zombies and this creepy guy who hit on you. Like that is... Don't forget her own father straps her to the table. Right. Which is just... You're you're right. Which is an important Mm. fact to, for me to not overlook. Yeah. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, and what my point is like, you could have Dean and Herbert, Dan and Herbert show up at that moment and rescue her. And it's not like the audience loses anything. There's, there's nothing about the actual on screen violation um, that this movie is better for. Yeah. I will say, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm probably about to say the same thing you are. Do you want to talk about that actor's wife? (laughs) Yeah. So um, I don't know if this adds catharsis to anybody. It does. Well, I'm glad. Um, So that actor who played um, Dr. Carl Hill, his name is David Gale. And David Gale had like a 30 year film career with a lot of schlocky horror movies in them. Um, you go on the man's IMDb and his picture is not like a headshot or anything, but it's the picture of reanimator with his severed head and a medical bag. Like, Oh no. So David Gale is an actor and this is what he does. And this is the kind of movies that he makes during the filming of the scene. Supposedly the story is he was very awkward. He was very just beside himself with like, I don't feel good about this, but this is what the director's telling me to do. And like very apologetic to Barbara Crampton as that scene goes on. Okay. Points to you for not like being a lech in real life and just playing one. You're an actor. Um, But apparently that did not console his wife who during the screening of the movie, when it got to the sexual assault scene and especially specifically the part where the severed head of David Gale attempts to go down on Barbara Crampton. Apparently his wife in the middle of the theater stands up and screams, David, how could you? And runs off. Which fair, which fair. Absolutely. Um, and so this led to very shortly after the divorce between David Gale and his wife and every (laughs) source I can find sites that that incident is what led to their divorce. Fucking good. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. I hope he learned a lesson. I hope everyone involved learned a lesson. Right. And then grasping firmly with both hands, you pull the skin forward over the head. Very much like peeling a large orange. <laughs> when I saw that in our notes, I was like, hmm, vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Okay. 
vengeance becomes her. Um, did you feel vengeance when like the the in movie character's head was exploded? Yes. Okay. Good. I also very much loved that his head just got stuck on a ticket pike. That was very yes. good. Yeah. So like, I think this kind of leads us back into a little bit more of the tone we like to have on this show. Like this movie is funny. I don't know if that makes oh, what I just talked about better or worse, but like the movie has comedy to it. And one of my favorite parts is what you just talked about. You know, Herb Herbert West cuts off the guy's head with a shovel and then is trying what? like instantly goes, Oh, Oh, Oh wait. Oh, Oh, I'm never going to get an opportunity like this instantly. Okay. <laughs> He says the worst line that I love, love backslash hate. Can I say it? Oh, yeah. I've never done whole parts before. (laughs) (laughs) I've never done whole parts before. Instantly, like, reanimates the severed head and um, has the moment where he's sticking it in the table and it flops over. Sticks it back on the table and it flops over again and then takes the receipt spike and uses it to prop the head up. That's brilliant. That is so funny to me. Oh my just God. that and like, you know, we, I mentioned briefly, like, does the dog die? No, but the cat sure does. Like there's mm-hmm. the scene where they're fighting the reanimated cat and, um, they throw it against the wall. And so then the third time they reanimate it, Herbert's like, remember, it's got a broken back. Don't expect it to prance. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And then there's the um, potential roommate asking, like, do you have a basement? And everyone who's ever seen a horror movie is like, no, bitch, no, don't rent the room to this person. Well, and I was going to say, you know, that's that's just a funny moment of, like, we live in 2020 privilege of the idea of just, like, tacking to a a wall roommate needed and then having a complete stranger come up to your door and being like i've got first month like that does not happen nope 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 (laughs) oh um i don't know if this was funny to me but another moment of comedy which is more like just weird than anything else Apparently it was in the script that the security guard Mace, like whenever he was going on break or like leaving his desk, he always talks about, Oh, time to go get some coffee. Apparently it's in the script that he's going to go jacket. I didn't love that. (laughs) I didn't love that because he's like one of the few characters of color. And I'm like, Oh, well, right. Oh, is this what we're wanting like because he's like the token black guy with lines it's like is that what you're trying to portray about black men and i was like "Mm." and it's so weird because like okay so like an hour of this movie got cut out which is astounding to me the fact that there was another hour of this Um, how can there be another hour i don't understand that's what i'm saying yeah I don't know if any of this like comes to better fruition, but like in the cut we got, there is nothing to 
like show that it's just this really weird character motivation. Like the only thing is, yeah, the dude's got, um, actually I, I thought it was funny. The dude's porno mag is called boudoir. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. He's, he's doing the tasteful one. He's not sitting there reading jugs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but like that magazine is the only thing that denotes the, perversions that are in the script for the character so Mm -hmm. i don't know another thing i don't know about is that at at the very at the very very end after the incredibly graphic rape scene after the dad who ties his daughter to the table also proceeds to save the day what the fuck um there's also a you know, Dr. Hill gets officially dead and then his intestines reach out and attack Dan. Or no, I think they, they attack Herbert. Cause that's the last time oh, we I'm see sorry. them. I mean, you're fine. That's right. That's right. We, they attack Herbert and then Herbert does like this hand up through the fog. And it's the incredible prequel to like the independence day, like hand down the window. Right. So there's that. And like that to me, I saw that and yeah, I thought it was weird. It, it felt like a, um, it just felt like another thing where it's like, we need a boss fight. We need, we need a final set piece to really put this movie over the top. Oh, I know. Exploding intestinal monster. Um, like it's like they watched the thing and decided, oh, we can get away with some of that. <laughs> apparently, and I have not seen them, but apparently Dr. Herbert West survives his zombie encounter because there are two more of these. I refuse. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not at all suggesting. <laughs> like I I I I tap out. <laughs> Listener, if you want to watch them and let us know how um, Bride of Reanimator and Beyond Reanimator are, uh, go right ahead. We'll take your word for it. (laughs) It's like how we're never going to see the other three Toxic Avenger movies. So I, I did want to bring up something. So you were talking about how it was confusing to you. Like why does um, Dr. Hill have a one way mirror padded cell, like built into his office just Um, right there hanging out. Right. So this movie, I said it was like a more expensive version of toxic Avenger. And that's true. It had a $900,000 budget, but like even in the eighties, $900,000 to make a movie isn't that much so if you like really pay attention there's only like three actual sets in the movie there's the hospital there's the um there's dan's house and like there's the office for for hill and halsey like 
the padded cell I think is built into there because like they just didn't have the budget to do anything else. And <laughs> even as you, even as you watch it, like the walls are super flimsy. There's one part where like somebody runs past them and they like shake really quickly. And it's just like, Oh, oh no. okay. You can, you can definitely see the strings there. They put a lot of their money into the special effects, which I guess that's where you want to put your money. Like, mm-hmm. For comparison, Toxic Avenger had 500,000. So, like, that's like nothing. We're flying by the seat of our pants. Then you get Reanimator, which is a, like a small budget, but at least doable. They did have, like, the production accountant played a nurse, and, like, the director was one of the corpses. So, they were definitely, like, doing double duty here. But <laughs> just for, for a low budget, I think they really got some nice results out of it. Yeah. So in the last scene, I do want to talk about that. From a feminist reading, so we have, you know, we have the whole movie where Dan and Herbert, like, go through this whole thing where they discover reanimation and they discover they're good at it and they kind of have a plan. And then they go through this boss fight where they're fighting all the zombies and Herbert gets caught in the zombies and we don't see him again, but apparently he's in two other movies. And then Dan and Megan get out, but Megan gets hurt and ends up dying. Or ends up, you know, uh, passing out. And Dan tries to chest compress her, which brings that visual code of, like, at the beginning, there's a chest compression. At the end, there's a chest compression. And he fails to bring her back to life through chest compression. And so then he reanimates, he he puts the glow stick liquid at the back of her skull, injects. So this poor girl, this poor woman, has not been through enough. She doesn't get to enjoy death. She doesn't get to be silent and enjoy, you know, whatever afterlife you believe in. No, no. She's brought back to life. When... She... <laughs> When the movie has established that all that happens is you come back and you're like insane. So. Well, and also what kind of afterlife is she going to, or like what kind of life is she going to enjoy? Even if she's brought back and she's fine at best, she gets to marry a middling middle school student and do what? Like, that's not something that's cool enough to be brought back for. No, you brought up an excellent point that kind of went over my head. Like, you know, her, she watches her dad become a monster and then die. She has a traumatic couple of days with her boyfriend, breaks up with said boyfriend, if I remember right, Um, Mm -hmm. goes through the most traumatizing experience possible in that her father's colleague's head does the things to her. And then, yeah, she, she gets choked out by one of the zombies and you're right. It's like, like what is there to come back to? Why would you want to come back to that? Yeah, exactly. No, she became a prop for like, Dan's character arc and her final note is like okay he's crazy enough that he's gonna do the reanimating himself now and Mm -hmm. movie 
was dead when I found him. You killed him. He hated you. Yep. So, I got to tell you, like, I'm, I'm leading into did you enjoy the movie, which we've answered several times. I was so excited for this. And we sit here and talk about how it's a good movie. And it's not a bad movie. But for reasons that we've gone into pretty heavily, like, I remember this being a lot better than it was. And I don't know if that's just an extra 10 years of me being a film nerd or mm. or what to assign that to. But honestly, I was expecting better yeah. all around. Yeah, I have to say, I I really enjoyed the first... Enjoyed might be the wrong word. It was better than a lot of the movies we watched for the first hour 20. Right. And then it just took a nosedive right down. Right, we're still waiting for that one good movie we watch on the show, apparently. <laughs> hey, we watched Totoro, and that was great. We did watch Totoro. <laughs> and we watched... Um... <laughs> But I'm a cheerleader. I don't think we had anything uh, bad to say about that. No, we didn't. That's such a <laughs> pure, beautiful movie. Absolutely. Uh, I will note that all of the movies that we've watched that have been innocent and lovely and good have all been, like, movies that I deeply, deeply enjoyed already. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> So, speaking of things I deeply enjoy, Andy, did you have any favorite quotes from this movie? You know, I did. And and a couple of we we said a couple of the 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 best lines, the funniest lines of the show, but my favorite quote did wind up being after Herbert West reanimates Hill and Hill like knocks him out. Later Dan <laughs> finds Herbert in the basement and they're talking about it all and Dan goes, "Wait, he's dead?" And you just hear Herbert go, not anymore. That's just a fun <laughs> delivery, fun line. Like, I love Jeffrey Combs. He is unimpeachable in my brain. He also has another, his, he did my other favorite quote, which was, who's going to believe a talking head, get a job and a sideshow? <laughs> yeah. The shade of it all. Oh my gosh, such shade. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, you know, I said how I really didn't like this movie. That does not mean it doesn't get Oscars because Fair. every movie deserves at least an Oscar. And so I want to hear yours. My Oscar for this movie goes to the most unlikely friendship. Which, fair? Because I feel at the end of the movie that uh, Dan and Herbert are kind of friends. Like they kind of understand each other a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the end of the movie, they're friggin' kindreds, like. <laughs> it's um, just not a friendship that I would have seen coming. So I had a really hard time, given the last 20 minutes of this movie, to find something that I wanted to watch. Sure. An Oscar for. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's like, Oscar for most unlikely friendship. <laughs> Well, apparently, I'm looking at it now, Bride of Reanimator, which came out six years later and is the sequel, is still about uh, Herbert and Dan, like, running around Central America? Wait, what? 
What? Running around Central America reanimating bodies from the Peruvian Civil War and no. creating the perfect woman. Hard pass. Hard pass. Okay. Hard pass. Totally, totally don't need to actually watch that. I just, I was struck by the, wait, wait what? <laughs> the movie's about what? uh well okay if the first movie is like a frankenstein reattempt it makes sense that the second movie is a bride of frankenstein reattempt so sure why not stitch together a perfect woman out of a minority it's fine whatever man i was i'm gagging yeah i know i know Uh, well, I guess my point of all of that was they're still friends in the sequel. <laughs> um, but speaking of, my Oscar for Reanimator goes for best reason to cancel a sequel. Because we, we mentioned there are two of these, which I I think I had heard about, but I didn't like know until researching this. What I also didn't know is there was going to be a fourth one called House of Reanimator. And apparently this movie was somehow going to be set in the White House and the plot was going to involve Herbert West, like accidentally murdering and then reanimating the vice president. This would have been like somewhere in like 2008 ish kind of time. Um, Oh no. After the Bush administration after uh, George H.W. Bush got elected for a second term director, Brian Usna was so like jaded and upset that he basically thought to himself, there's no, there's nothing satirical I can do that is going to match what our political landscape is like right now. So I'm just not going to make this movie. Uh, Oh. Oh. And oh. and we look back on on W with a, a shade of fondness now. He he painted Andy. He painted portraits. He painted and and, and did you see the time he gave Michelle Obama some candy? Isn't he just great? I mean, no, he's still a warlord. He's still he's, totally he's still a war people. criminal, but um, <laughs> he's not Trump. Like now I think we've come full circle and now it's like, no, I need, now I need a White House reanimator movie. Except like maybe Herbert West reanimates Abraham Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln's zombie chops off Donald Trump's head. We could write it. We're writing it. We're writing it right now. Yes. And then let's call Coheed and Cambria for help. Sounds good to me. No, I've cool. just, I've got it in my head. Like you set the whole thing, like during the, the Mueller report and like, uh, West, <laughs> West accidentally kills bar right before he reads it. And that's why he looks like such a fucking zombie. Oh no. But we're getting political on the movie podcast show. So, <laughs> so let's stop that. Andy, 
Is this movie cult? This movie is totally cult. It's it's quotable. It is this is grindhouse. Like like yeah. that's really what it is. I'm sure there is more disturbing shit put to film. I really hope that it's not waiting in our movie list, but like this is a grindhouse flick that just came out a decade after the grindhouse is closed. We didn't talk about this, but like the movie was going to be banned in Britain unless they removed the sexual assault scene. They did so oh, that wow. it would be played in Britain, but then just decided, well, nobody else told us to ban that. So we'll, we'll just keep it in the movie. But more than that, like it, it, it is a, uh, it is a flop. You know, I mentioned it has a $900,000 budget. It made half of that in the opening weekend, but has a worldwide gross of 2 million. So it like falls right into that space where it's like, well, you didn't make back triple. So your movie's not a hit, but I mean, people remember it. It, it spawned two sequels. So reanimator is patently cult. For better and for worse. But can we connect it to Kevin Bacon? (laughs) Uh, I can. Do you want to go first? Uh, Yeah, I can too. Because I'm somebody who always remembers the... um, little code I write for myself. Oh no, I'm an idiot. Okay. So Jeffrey Combs was in a movie called Edmund, which I know nothing about, but was written by David Mamet and stars Willem H. Macy. So I think I want to know about it. Um, Yes. We will watch it, Andrew. We have the power. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> real quick because just i looked it up it had like a million dollar budget and its worldwide gross is twenty five hundred dollars so like oh, it's a no. mega bomb and i think oh, i want to watch no. it more because of that <laughs> anyway on the list uh jeffrey combs was in edmund with willem h macy who mm-hmm. was in murder in the first with kevin bacon so i can nice. connect it i can also connect it nice so Robert Sampson, who played Dean Halsey, was in The Broken Land with Jack Nicholson, who was in, can you guess it? <laughs> Good Men with Kevin Bacon. Sidebar, A Few Good Men is a movie that like, if I catch it in the back half and I know I get to see the courthouse scene, I will sit down and watch the rest of A Few Good Men. <laughs> <laughs> you handle the truth i love it i love it too shall we see if we love our next movie i mean you know i certainly hope so it, it would be nice i mean now my so nice now my goal is like to find the movie that you genuinely walk away being like i'm really glad i saw that and that justifies everything we've seen up until that point <laughs> <laughs> fair enough so Uh, If we're adding Edmund, then we still have 310 movies on the list. And on Cult Fiction, we always pick the next movie with a random number generator. So it is looking like the next movie is going to be... Not Anaconda, not Anaconda, not Anaconda, not Anaconda. (laughs) 
Ooh. It's not Anaconda. Is it Anaconda? It's not Anaconda. I'll Jesus. I'll laugh when it's Anaconda. But okay. I don't think it's going to be the movie that we walk away liking. Because next okay. on Cult Fiction is 1986's Howard the Duck. What? <sighs> Jesus H. All I know about this movie is George Lucas like produced it and there are duck boobs. Oh no. All I know about this movie is that it's a joke to everyone. Case in point, it's like a a, a short bit in one of the like Avenger or Guardians of the Galaxy like end caps like at the end of the movie after the credits. Oh yeah, that's Seth Green. That's that's like I laughed so hard when I saw that in theaters. Yeah, now we have to watch that. Oh, yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah, we do. Apparently, it's got cool. Leah Thompson. I'm excited for that. What? Leah Thompson, no Tim Robbins. I'm pretty sure it's got Christopher Lloyd. Oh, I do love Christopher Lloyd. I don't think we're going to be polishing this turd, but I'm already looking for the things that I can like about it. Um, At time of recording, listener, Howard the Duck is available for rent on uh, Amazon. Okay. Does it have anything that will be awful for us? Let's find out, you know, real quick. Does the dog die? Dot com. If you type that into Google, the first thing is hereditary. (laughs) (laughs) I like that for silly reasons. Reasons. Howard the Duck is not listed on doesthedogdie.com. So that can't be right. Hold on. There are movies from the 40s on here. I mean, I will say it's rated PG. So I certainly hope there isn't anything that will will come away being genuinely upset and scarred by. This is not going to be the movie we like, but it's the movie we're going to (laughs) watch. So glad. (laughs) Well, shall I end the episode, Andy? Why don't you? Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But please, please join us next time. Um, Usually when it's a bad movie, we have a lot of fun ripping it to shreds. So please... Join us next time when we are forced to look at duck boobs as we watch 1986's Howard the Duck. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell.